Now, this is the moment you've been waiting for. The nominated are for the best motion picture of the year. And from an abundance of excellence, we have nominated. Well, we come now to the final award of the evening, the one for best picture. And here are the nominees for best picture of the year. When we're at the movies, we're not alone. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. This seemed like a better idea in rehearsal. While still fundamentally escaping. Mm -hmm. Man, did he play the long game. Wow. I don't know if I would have that patience. I would I really not. I don't know. I 100% would not, and I think my partner would. Um, but I would not. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. I think that's all I've got about Shawshank. Yep. All right. Um, I kind of want to finish on finish on Pulp Fiction, so we'll do Quiz Show next. Excellent. Oh, Quiz Show. This is a very interesting description of it. It is an American detective docudrama. I'm like, hmm. I, I hate word salad descriptions, but I think that one's actually pretty accurate. I have thoughts. We'll get okay. into it later. <laughs> uh, released September 14th, 1994. It was produced by Robert Redford, Michael Jacobs, Julian Cranin, and Michael Nozick. Directed by Robert Redford. Screenplay by Paul Atencio. At Atanasio? Probably Sorry, Atencio. Yeah, I think you're right. There's, a, there's more A's than I expect there to be. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's based on Remembering America, a voice from the 60s by Richard Goodwin, who was an associate producer on this film as well. Uh, cinematography by Michael Ballhaus, edited by Stu Linder, music by Mark Isham. And it runs 133 minutes. It stars Ray Fiennes, John Totoro, Rob Morrow, David Paymer, Paul Schofield, Hank Azaria, Christopher McDonald, Adam Kilgore, Paul Gilfoyle, and Martin Scorsese is also in this. Hmm. Like, you don't realize it's Scorsese at first. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. And that was it. Um, it was it. also nominated for supporting actor. Oh, I remember that. Who was? Uh, Where is it? Supporting. Oh, Paul Schofield as Mark Van Doren was nominated for best supporting actor. Um, did not did not win that. Um. So quiz show. Um. Like the description says, it's a docudrama, so um, there's a lot of liberty taken, but it's based on true events for a um, late 50s American quiz show um, called 21, and uh, we learn through the very beginning of the film, really, is that uh, the network decides who gets to be on and stay on and who who's no longer on um herb stemple is their current reigning champion of 21 and uh, during one show a couple phone calls go around executives and they say we want herb out sure he sells the product geritol but um he's he's not interesting i don't want to watch him anymore so we need someone new um it, in the same time frame a uh young up-and-coming english professor named Charles Van Doren, who, uh, as it turns out, is the son of famed poet Mark Van Doren, um, applies to be on a different quiz show, but the executives decide he would be really good on 21. So they have him on 21, and they ask him questions that he already knows the answer to. And they tell him, we're going to ask you questions that you already know the answer to. Like, you could win all this money. It's not hurting anyone. Don't worry about it. Um, Herb, in the meantime, chooses to take a dive on what everyone considers to be a very easy question. What was the Academy Award winner for 1955? Marty? It was Marty. Marty! Marty. 
Yes, haven't at done that episode the, yet. At the request of the producer? Yes. Yes, at the request of the producer. Yeah. He takes this planned dive. Yeah. Yeah. They they do want him out. And and this becomes a point of contention throughout the whole movie. No one forces you to do anything because in the end you make the decision. Um we'll get into it. So um everyone's kind of shocked that Herb gets this super easy question wrong because this is happening uh this film is set in 1958 so the 1955 winner would have been the 1956 oscars that's only two years ago you like uh, to be fair i don't remember what won the oscar for best picture two years ago but like i can i can figure that out when you didn't have the internet like this is knowledge you would probably have in your head yeah, you just had to, like, know things. Or you're like Sherlock Holmes and you've got just a wall of encyclopedias. Slash, there was hardly anything else on TV and it would have been covered in all the newspapers. And, uh, yeah, it was didn't a, have the it, internet. It was a much bigger deal to watch it regularly and to know all of the answers. Whereas now, if you don't watch it, it's not a big deal. You can look it up later. Yeah. Um, so there's a, uh, young, it's so hard to describe Rob Morrow's character, uh, Richard Goodwin. He's a congressional lawyer um, that works on a, um, it, what is it? It's an oversight subcommittee, like the most desk job of all desk jobs. Yeah, I uh, had a hard time with his title. I just ended up referring to him as the investigator. Yeah, Goodwin. That's what I call them most of the time. Yeah. Um, he he thinks this is odd. He thinks that easy of a question is very strange and it just kind of like sticks with him. And then a few weeks later, he sees that um, there was a grand jury investigation into, um, it, into this whole quiz show because Herb Stemple seems to have launched a, um, uh, I don't know. He, he basically raised questions and like brought it up the courts as far as he could. And so Goodwin, the investigator, sees that these grand jury findings have been sealed, which is a very strange thing to do. In fact, they discover that the grand jury findings have not been sealed since 1896, and it's 1958. So it's a very odd thing. So he starts looking deeper and deeper into it. Um, uh, Goodwin goes looking at all of the past contestants and tries to understand why would this have happened now of course they've been at a grand jury trial and the results are sealed so there's only so much that these people can actually talk about herb stemple unfortunately is a uh, very difficult person um who for whatever reason is convinced that he deserves to be on tv i i got issues with that um i at one believe point someone that... says i believe that he believed that he was promised another spot on TV, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what his main stink is about, is that mm-hmm. he wasn't getting something that he thought was promised. I don't know why he needs to be on TV, why that's what he wants, but like, whatever. That's... I mean, at the very beginning, somebody sees him and says, well, that's a face for radio. So, yeah. So anyways, that's what Herb wants. Yeah. That's his motivator. <laughs> and And so Herb spends the entire movie basically just trying to get back into the limelight so goodwin um finally actually finds some hard evidence that would prove that there is wrongdoing here he manages to take it um to a congressional hearing and basically they're now putting tv as a whole on trial and they're putting entertainment on trial in the meantime, Charles Van Doren, who unseated Herb, is uh, starting to get kind of used to the limelight, enjoying this newfound celebrity and this money, so much money. Um, and Goodwin goes to Van Doren. They actually end up becoming friends. Um, and Goodwin basically asks Van Doren, like, is it rigged? Are you given the answers? And Van Doren refuses to answer him. So Goodwin says, well, don't make me call you on the stand. Guess what happens? Van Doren gets called to the stand. Surprise, surprise. The producers of NBC have basically attempted to absolve the entire corporation. Um, And the 
film ends with Charles Van Doren having given a prepared statement where he admits that he lied to the American people. The producers, um, Dan Enright and whoever his assistant was, um, get fired and um, basically are like, do they go to jail? I think they, Enright no. and Friedman. No, they um, do not go to jail. No. They but are they, kind of blacklisted. I want to yeah, talk they're about blacklisted that for a little while, but then they get to come back in like the seventies or something we'll like talk that. Talk about that in a minute. Um, Charles Van Doren is effectively ruined. Um, Goodwin. It's not that he didn't achieve anything, but he didn't get the result that he wanted, and uh, Herb Stemple um, goes back to Queens, and that's where our film ends. Mm-hmm. So, with the end of this film, um, before the end credits roll the filmmakers included a where are they now yeah um so they make a point of telling you what happens when this story is over Mm -hmm. which which tells us that there are no consequences for your actions um, you know what? I, there's there are no consequences if you are rich or powerful enough. Yeah, like the one that stuck out to me the most um, was after years of exile, Dan Enright and Jack Berry, the host of the quiz show, mm-hmm. returned to television with The Joker's Wild. It made them millionaires. Yeah. So not only like yeah they were exiled for a while. But they came like back and were more successful than ever. Yeah, everyone just forgot about it. They just ignored it. It's like it didn't happen. So. And I think that's a much larger political commentary than I'm willing to get into. But I agree with you. Like, what, if if movies are supposed to teach you something, what did we learn? Talk to me about cancel culture when it exists. Mm. Um, when we actually cancel people that should be canceled and not just right people like, we can actively yell at most of these people in this film should have been canceled and they were mm-hmm. not they like even charles like he didn't well he wasn't on television again really like he was mm-hmm. for a bit and then uh he didn't work at columbia again he never taught again. he never taught again he became a writer like he just retreated and um i read about um and by read, I mean, looked at the Wikipedia article of um, Charles Van Doren. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he didn't teach again, but he worked for the Encyclopedia Britannica, which he was kind of planning on doing anyways. Yeah. So, so he got what he really. wanted. Mm-hmm. Like, Charles got what he wanted. Herbert, whatever, had like a regular job. He didn't work in TV, but he like, he had a career in supporting yeah. his family. Um, and then the other um, producer, um, Albert Friedman... It didn't say anything that he got exiled or anything. Mm-hmm. And at the time of filming, he was working for Penthouse. And I'm like, cool, be gross, live your dreams. Um, and there were no consequences for NBC or Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Which, as someone who works in pharmacy, that is like the most non-name I've ever heard. I have never heard of Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. That, I... does, that company does not exist. I think they don't anymore. I think they've yeah. been bought by someone. Anyways, there were no consequences. They got yeah. to live their live their lives of whatever. They they continued selling their product. They um the... there were no new regulations for television. Nothing. Which I think was Goodwin's goal, but that yeah. didn't happen. Um and so yeah, I was, I was confused. <laughs> I will say with that, I I am torn. I'm very much of two minds with that because there's part of me that says, if you lie to people, you should be held accountable, but it's entertainment. And I think, I think where I have an issue as a fan and I, I love a quiz show. I love Jeopardy. Like literally my parents and I watch it every night. Um, RIP Alex Trebek. Oh, my heart, my heart was so heavy that day. Um, I, I don't mind the thought that a quiz show is rigged, but what I mind is that you constantly tell me, no, it's not. 
like we we definitely don't tell people the answers and i think the thing with like jeopardy specifically the reason i know for certain that at least now it's not rigged is james holtzauer this like boring as hell man who was on there for like three straight months won millions of dollars and i was like i hate him like i don't care about this contestant in the slightest and i know i wasn't alone in that feeling so that's how i know like it's not rigged because <laughs> if it was rigged he would have been off a lot sooner mm -hmm. and and i don't mind my in like reality tv i don't mind the fact that reality tv is like scripted to a certain extent that like you're put in specific situations i'm fine with that i don't mind that um a lot of these like talk shows and stuff like that are not completely raw and genuine like there's a very specific script that you're following i am fine with that because it's entertainment but my line is when you lie to me and say no we definitely would never do that but it's clear that you are doing that thing that's when i have a problem yes and that's us um looking at it in the 21st century mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. late 1950s television as a medium is still pretty fresh mm -hmm. this is a relatively new medium and the audience doesn't know that you can't trust reality tv yet yeah. They haven't learned that lesson. Um, they're used to seeing the news. They're used to radio plays. And even sometimes the radio plays get them. War of the Worlds. I was um, going to say. And uh, so audiences hadn't learned this lesson yet. Um, that this was what television entertainment was going to be like. It, that it's there's, more akin to the movies than to the news. Yeah, there's no critical thinking or critical consumption yet. Because we just don't know. We don't have the language. We didn't have the understanding. Yeah, and so that's why... Um, well, that's what I thought the point of this movie was going to be. <laughs> was sort and of a, a learning about television mm -hmm. and media. And there was going to be some sort of moral at the end. And there wasn't. Um, and it's interesting that this film came out in 1994 because not a lot, but I think a good chunk of the audience who would have come to see this movie would actually have remembered that scandal because that it is based on true events. So they would mm -hmm. have remembered seeing it play out. Um, although it was apparently like a really, it was a box office failure, but it was a critical success. You know, the usual, like the critics love it, but the audience doesn't understand it. Yeah, probably because they didn't give you a character to root for. Like, um, um, I did root I... for Goodwin. Yes. Um, so it's based on Goodwin's memoir. Mm -hmm. So I would have thought that, like, it would make sense to tell Goodwin's story. Mm -hmm. um, and I, as I was looking at the Wikipedia page for this movie... Um, they mentioned something. I don't know who they is. They mentioned something about how, well, the film didn't really have a clear protagonist. So they decided to like switch it around in different parts of the film. It and was the, the screenwriter at Atancio. It's A-T-T-A-N-A-S-I-O. I just Atancio? don't know what to do with that middle A. I don't know. I'm making it very Italianate. Um, <laughs> um, so like they knew that there wasn't a clear protagonist and yet they didn't pick one. They were just like, oh, we'll just switch yeah. around and which like is a fine narrative device. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, it just didn't work. It didn't flow properly. And I wasn't invested in any of them really, like mm -hmm. not to the extent that I wanted to be. Um, after I watched this film, I just really wanted them to reframe the narrative and make it more like Silence of the Lambs and mm -hmm. that the investigator is trying to prove something, is trying to solve something, and we look at it from the investigator's perspective and go through the story as them. Instead, we got a story that was um, told chronologically. Mm -hmm. But a very weird chronology. It felt like it was happening in like a weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we meet Goodwin first in a scene that has no bearing on the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. um, and then they set it up. It's like, oh, Herb Stemple's going to be the main character. 
Mm-hmm. And then they introduce Charles Van Dorn, like he's going to be the main character. And then we don't hear from Goodwin for like the next hour. It's a solid 45 minutes before we actually see Goodwin as a character. Yeah. Um, so that like that type of pacing was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I struggled so much with um, Ray Fiennes as uh, Charles Van Doren. I don't know what it was but it felt like he couldn't do an American accent. And so I kept expecting him to be British because he, it was like not quite American, but not quite mid Atlantic. Like it just, it's so, it was weird. It was in some in between world where I was like, the words coming out of your mouth, just, they don't work. They just don't make sense. It didn't feel very natural. Um, I have not seen any clips of the real Charles Van Doren. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if... Um, I'm sorry, I forget the actor's name. I just have been calling him Voldemort. Um, <laughs> Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. It's technically spelt Ralph, but it's pronounced Ray. And I don't know why. Like Ray Fawn Williams. That's a sure. thing. Sorry, a classical composer. Um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, uh, yeah, I don't know if that was a choice he made or if he was emulating, um, the real Charles Van Doren, because I know he watched him as research. Yeah, I think, I think it was a little bit of both, a little bit of choice and a little bit of, um, uh, like being, uh, authentic to the person. But, but I also think like, it just, he needed help. He needed a, um, vocal coach to just get him over that. Cause I agree. It was very forced. It was very stiff. And I um I decided to read that as him being an upper class white man, um mm-hmm. and that's just how this type of American aristocracy talks. Um, and and this was very much at the height of the um, New England um, upper class. Uh, I I saw it a lot in um, Auntie Mame, in mm. the from 1958 that that gave me a really clear picture into it. And so I would equate those. Yeah. Um, and they, the film tried to make it look like these men were dealing with major moral qualms. Mm-hmm. That it's like, oh, am I going to answer the question right or am I not? I don't know. I'm trying to decide in the moment they while I'm really in this booth and I don't know moments. what I'm doing. And I need to decide... And so he decides to, Charles Van Doren decides to take the money, mm-hmm. um, take the which money he does not need because he's a legacy kid. Yeah. Um, and um, my favorite scene of this film was when we go to the Van Doren house and we're with Goodwin and he's with the whole family and mm-hmm. um, we get to see their family dynamic. I thought was really cool. Um, yeah. It's a very weird dynamic though. <laughs> yeah. But I liked the banter, the the nerdy AF banter between him and his dad. I thought that was hilarious. Quoting and Shakespeare at each other. We're going to have a Shakespeare battle. Like the Shakespeare off. Oh my God. Shakes like off. this is not a cabinet battle from Hamilton. Calm down. Um, See the difference is the cabinet battles from Hamilton had like rhythm and pace. We can't start talking about Hamilton. We're not doing we this. will we be here for days. Um, <laughs> But I really liked that dynamic, that father-son dynamic. And mm-hmm. I liked how we got to see how Charles Van Dorn is used to living. He's yep. used to living with money, with having his own sailboat in this big house with this mm-hmm. picturesque spot for lunch outside. And that's what he's used to. And yeah. he decides to lie for money anyways. I I think the small amount of credit that I would give to the Charles Van Dorn character is that... Um, he doesn't really take all of this stuff for granted. Like he knows how lucky he is. He still makes an absolutely terrible decision. And he, he makes a very selfish decision um, to lie and make money. I think part of it is that he wants to like have made money of his own instead of just relying on his dad's does it in entirely the wrong way. But I, I feel like that might've been the character motivation. Um, but he, he at least does realize, like, he is very privileged, he knows it, and he does not care. 
Yes. So his prepared statement that he brings to the congressional hearing in this speech that he has written, has premeditated upon and presumably edited and practiced, he admits that he is privileged and he admits publicly that he has had certain opportunities and whatever and that he decided to do this thing anyways. And his whole confession, even when he's apologizing, is so entitled. And the committee thanks him. Thank you. I, this was a really brave thing you did here I, today, I, son. And I'm like, fuck so the fuck to off. see such honesty from a man of your age and you were... Cl- fuck and then off. there's the one guy on the end who's like, pardon the no. fuck? You told the truth. And I'm like, thank you random guy at the end of the table bare fucking minimum that you should do like it's like how modern fathers get lauded for being home for dinner i'm like okay i my you did the bare minimum every fucking night like it's not that hard you just gotta make sure you plan for it like yeah it it takes a minimum amount of foresight and you can do the bare minimum we should um, not be applauding the bare minimum, especially from a white man. Exactly. Um, like, this is a white man in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was, it was hard to watch that speech. And I, I was so sad when I watched, when I got about halfway through this movie, because I knew nothing about it, never heard of it. Um, looked, I, when I was like trying to decide what I was going to watch one night, I was like, oh, well, what are my options? I was like, oh, well. I, I went through the three movies that I'd seen. I'd watched Forrest Gump, Shawshank, and Pulp Fiction. And I was like, okay, well, Quiz Show or Four Weddings and a Funeral. Ugh, I don't feel like I can handle Four Weddings and a Funeral. Let's, what's Quiz Show about? I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. Like, the, I was so excited because it sounded like such a great story. And it was boring. I didn't mm-hmm. think it was, like... I was bored and then it would pick up like when the congressional hearings was happening. I was like, this is interesting. And then it ended. And I was like, what? No consequences. Yeah. Like there were so many fascinating things to do and to tell and to talk about. And they did none of them. And then the movie ended and nobody was punished. It was just disappointing. Yeah, so I think this movie would have been made more interesting by not including the where are they now. Mm. If it had just ended and left it up to the audience to imagine or do their research, that would have been a more interesting film because maybe there would have been consequences. Because right before that, they're saying, Columbia's meeting right now to talk about your tenure. And like, oh, maybe he won't have a career after this. But then immediately they tell you that he does. And I'm just like... But I, but I think you can't you can't make it a docudrama without giving us the where are they now? Like if they made it specifically a film that is like based on true events or uh, inspired by true events, then I think they could get away without doing the where are they now? But because they were like we're going to tell this story reasonably accurately, like I I always grant a significant amount of artistic license. Uh, that's fine. Doesn't bother me. Um, but I, you can't, I don't know. I, I think um, the big short did this a lot better where they gave us the, where are they now? And they told us there were no consequences for anyone in this, except the little guy. And, and I feel like um, quiz show could have taken that tact, but I don't think they had the wherewithal to do that. Like in 1994, I don't think that was a thing the filmmakers would have considered. And so that leads me to ask, like, why make this film? Mm -hmm. Why was this story chosen to be told in a relatively accurate way if there isn't anything to say? Yeah. Um, And, like, was it really that much of a momentous occasion because there nothing changed? Yeah. Nothing changed in film or, sorry, in television. And so it makes the moment seem less significant. Mm-hmm. and i like is this how goodwin was reflecting on it like and i feel like if again if they if the filmmakers had come out of it and like been very clear about there were no consequences 
we should have held these people accountable, I would have been like, okay, that's that's the perspective that you're taking on it. But it was like, this was a huge scandal. A huge scandal that I personally had never heard of. I had no idea this happened. No, I didn't and, know this um, was I didn't know this was based in true events until I looked it up afterwards. I knew going into the film that it was based on true events and I watched it with my partner and they were looking things up the whole mm -hmm. time. Um being like, Oh, that's who this person was, that's what happened here, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um so I kind of had this commentary of yeah, truth yeah. going on while I was watching it, which is fine. Um, I forget what my point was in bringing that up. Um, well, it's, it's a different way to watch it, right? Because, like, <coughs> the movie doesn't tell you that it's a docudrama. Like, a lot of other films that are based in true events in the same way would be, like, based on true events. Um, this one doesn't tell you that at all. Like, it gives you that coda of this is where everyone is. But, like, I've seen that happen in totally fictional films, too. So, like, you yeah. have no way of knowing that this is real. Yeah. And uh, I had um, mentioned to both my parents separately that um, I was watching these movies for this purpose. And one of the movies was Quiz Show, and neither of them had heard of it. And mm -hmm. so I told them kind of the synopsis. And they're like, oh, that happened? Okay. Um, like, and, my parents and... weren't alive then, but their per yeah. parents were and would have known. And my parents are pretty, like, they're okay with culture. Like, in yeah. general, like, pop culture. Um, so I would have expected them to have heard of this, mm -hmm. and they hadn't. Um, so not only was this film forgettable, yeah. the, the event, was forgettable. event was forgettable. So, like, yeah. why tell the story? Probably because straight white men. Well, because Robert Redford wanted to, and he footed the bill. Yep. Yep. Um, that's the, I think that's the moral of this story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um again i think it's pretty um pretty clear that this movie was forgettable because we have talked about nothing but story we talked about story we talked a little bit about how uh ray fines played his character and that was it um oh i, I guess i should add that um i didn't know that voldemort was so handsome and i, know, I learned right? that oh i feel like voldemort. he was like the most handsome person in any of these movies yes. Yes. So uh I have a weird attraction to Rob Morrow. I I can't quite figure out what it is about him. Um but I I always love seeing him on screen. Well, there you go. Uh and also for the record, uh Martin Scorsese is like he he works at like Geritol or something like that. Like that's his character. And I oh. totally didn't realize that it was Martin Scorsese until like two scenes in and I was like that voice is so familiar. Why do I know that voice? Figured it out. There you go. Okay. One movie left. And uh, fans of the podcast will know that um, Quentin Tarantino is one of my favorite filmmakers, if not my favorite filmmaker of all time. So um, get ready for some bias. Oh, I am always up front with my bias, unlike the Academy. <laughs> like I also have bias towards this film, so let's, yeah. let's get into it. Okay. I'll try to be quick with a synopsis this time, um, because like any Tarantino movie, a lot of things happen, and they are not in chronological order. <laughs> so, uh, it is a neo-noir black comedy crime film, again with the word salad, uh, released May 21st, 1994 at Cannes, um, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino. Produced by Lawrence Bender. Um, I am going to point out that at the end, I did notice production credits to both Bob and Harvey Weinstein. And I always forget that about Tarantino. He was a Weinstein boy. So just a thing for us all to consider in the back of our minds. At least he's not getting the money anymore. It's true. So we can... I feel better about that at least. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Um, cinematography by Andre Sekula. I know that's not how the name is pronounced, but I, there's letters where I don't think there should be letters. Um, edited by Sally Mankey. Um, there's no music credit on this film uh, because it is a um, collected, uh, it, it's collected music. It's not original music, um, almost entirely pop culture music curated by Quentin Tarantino. It stars John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, 
Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Ving Rames, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walken, and Bruce Willis. Uh, and Tarantino makes his standard fil personal film cameo. Uh, it was nominated for Best Actor for Travolta, Best Supporting Actor for Jackson, Best Supporting Actress for Thurman, Best Original Screenplay, and Film Editing. Um, and I don't think it won any of those, which is too bad. It did win um, Original oh, Best Screenplay. Original. Yeah. Yeah, I see that now. Yeah, so it won Best Original, which I think is warranted. Um, okay, we got a lot of characters, and we got a lot of things that happen. I'm going to tell the story somewhat chronologically because, again, it's Tarantino. He jumps all over the place. Just makes it hard to summarize. Yes. No, I think that's a good call. <laughs> so we have uh, two hitmen, Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega. That would be um, Jackson and Travolta, respectively. They arrive at an apartment. Um, Vega has just returned from Amsterdam, which is kind of a through line throughout the movie. He was there for about three years. Um. They are attempting to retrieve a suitcase that is the property of their employer, Marcellus Wallace, and they have to get it back from these um, basically small time, I'm assuming drug dealers, but I just, it's never explained. They remind um, me of like unrefined frat boys. Yeah. That's yeah, the that's vibe really, I get from it's, them. It's frat boys who never went to college. Yeah. Yeah. They have no business being in crime. They have no business. Just end there. Because most of them are white men. Anyways. There, there is one black kid. Um, he is not particularly <laughs> redeemable, but got there. <sighs> um, and, and essentially, Jules and Vincent are there to threaten the guys to um, give back the briefcase. Um, throughout this entire scene, they end up killing two of the guys, the two main white guys. Um, and later on, a third white guy with a gun appears. He fires at the two of them and misses. He fires six shots with this massive handgun, misses all six shots. So then they eventually kill the boy. The uh, final character that was left alive um, uh, is the the black guy. Like He's a kid. I think his I name don't is really... Marvin. Marvin, thank you. I always forget his name. Um, yeah. So they take Marvin. Uh, in the car with them as they are driving um for whatever reason vince has the gun pointed at marvin like just and, turn and the safety off and the and... safety like he just turns around in his seat and like has the gun in his hand gun goes off marvin's splatter all over the back seat Negligence. so yeah <laughs> yeah like poor gun control there um so it's like 8 30 in the morning on like a saturday Everyone, the two of them are now panicking. Jules and Vince are like, we need to clean up this car as quickly as possible. So they pull into a house that has someone that is a friend of Jules. They call Marcellus. They explain the situation. Marcellus sends over um, the wolf, who is Harvey Keitel, and the wolf fixes everything. He cleans it all up. The car um, gets cleaned up and looks relatively presentable. Doesn't look like someone just got shot in it it's um, gonna make it to their chop shop or whatever that yeah, uh, yeah. is sympathetic to their situation um, <laughs> harvey Keitel is a treasure so they're gonna make it they're gonna get rid of the car it's and, gonna go away the problem's yeah. gonna go away um the guys get cleaned up as well and they are dressed in uh, just the spare clothes of the person whose house they have pulled into uh they then arrive at i I can't quite tell if it's a bar or if it's a strip club, but it's like the middle of the oh. afternoon. Sorry. They then go for breakfast at the diner. No, that that happens after. No, no, you're right. No, because they're sorry. delivering the, the briefcase. You're correct. I'm sorry. So now they're at the diner having breakfast with each other. And having a good conversation. Um, Jules has had a um, an epiphany, as it were. Uh, he, he feels that it was a sign from God that he needs to stop being a hitman. Um that all six of those shots totally missed him and Vince. Vince, not so much on uh, being convinced. And when Vince goes to the bathroom, two mostly random characters decide to 
hold up the restaurant. And, um, and so that's uh, Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer's characters, uh, who I don't think they get like proper. Oh, Ringo and Yolanda. They do get real names. Pumpkin and Yolanda. Honey Bunny. Just be cool, Honey Bunny. Be cool. Um, that gets repeated a lot. A lot. Um, a lot. Um, Jules manages to talk the two of them down. And um, they leave with money. He and Vince leave with the briefcase. And then they go to this closed bar strip club and meet Marcellus Wallace. Uh, who is talking to a boxer um, named Butch. He's talking to Butch and he tells Butch, you're going to take a dive in the fifth. So for whatever reason, Marcellus has uh, paid off this boxer to take a dive in the fifth round of the fight that he has that night. Not a lot comes out of that particular meeting with Marcellus Wallace for any of the characters that we know of as audience members. Um, the next night, we see Butch's fight and, uh, oh no, sorry. Oh, Mia first. Mia then first. Butch. Then Butch. Again, yeah. complicated. Yep. Um, Vince has to take Mia, Marcellus Wallace's wife, out for dinner. Um, for, I don't know, whatever reason, he has to keep her entertained. Uh, they actually have a rather pleasant evening. However, Vince, um, earlier in the day, had bought some heroin from his dealer and had it in his jacket pocket. So he and Mia get home. Mia has a cocaine problem. She finds a baggie of white powder in his jacket pocket, and she snorts it. Um, I don't know a lot about illicit drugs, but I know that you don't snort heroin. Um, so she almost immediately ODs. Vince then takes her to his drug dealer. They manage to get a epinephrine needle into her. Um, she somehow survives <laughs> that whole thing. Um, they get back and Vince is like, please don't tell Marcellus. And Mia's like, I would be in as much trouble as you if Marcellus knew. So this is between us. Cool. Next night, we're at the fight. And uh, we learn that Butch has bet the bribe from Marcellus on uh, himself. Double-crossing Marcellus knocks the dude out in like the first round. As it turns out, he uh, actually killed the other boxer because he hit him so hard. Runs away to a hotel room, meets up with his girlfriend. They're going to run away together with the money that they've got and start a new life. However, she forgot to pack the watch that Butch's dad um, gave him as an inheritance after uh, Mr. Coolidge Sr. Uh, died in a POW camp in Vietnam or yep. in Thailand? Uh, Hanoi. Vietnam. Yeah, so Hanoi is Vietnam. Yep. Um, this watch was uh, passed down through the men in the family. Like, they, they were all in the war, and this was a lucky watch. Sort of. Not really. Because a lot of It was still an heirloom. It's an heirloom. With sentimental very, value. Exactly. Very important to Butch. Can't believe Fabienne forgot it. Butch is at his apartment and realizes that there's a big-ass gun in his apartment as well. Um... Vince then opens the bathroom door and Butch just unloads into him. So, okay, Butch knows that he, uh, that Marcellus is looking for him now. Butch hops in the car, starts driving away, sees Marcellus at a crosswalk, and then hits him. I mean, in that moment, what else do you do? You hit him. Uh, Butch and Marcellus go off on a uh, foot chase. They end up in a pawn shop where the owner knocks them both out. They come to, they're in a basement. They both have ball gags in their mouth. Um, the owner is making a phone call to someone. We don't know who exactly. Uh, well, someone named Zed, but we don't know, really know what's about to happen. Uh, there's a scene where he unlocks a gimp from a locked box, which is very upsetting. Um, and then the this friend that the owner calls, um, the two of them assault Marcellus. Um, Butch manages to break out of his bonds. Um, it, like they're in another room. Butch breaks out, uh, gets a baseball bat and a, oh no, he gets a katana. The katana. He considers the baseball bat. He considers, I, I feel like the baseball bat is more in line, but he gets the katana. 
um, breaks into the room, kills the owner of the pawn shop, um, and then between him and Marcellus, they maim the other guy who is um, the the actual assaulter. Uh, and then Marcellus basically says, I'm going to make this man's very short life a living hell. Butch, if I never see you again, that will be the best for both of us. And um, Butch, Butch leaves. He he escapes on the motorcycle that, oh, I'm sorry, the chopper that Zed shows up on, um, grabs his girlfriend Fabienne, and they leave. And they get out of Dodge. Oh. So that is the, the chronological telling of this story. Yeah. It is, of course, not presented in this way. Yeah. Um, which, like, I'm cool with. This film is clearly divided into three sections with mm-hmm. a little bit of um, some filler and uh, some overlap and some uh, I heard it I saw it referred to as a prelude to whatever the next scene is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's clearly divided that we're shifting perspectives and we're going to be talking about somebody else um, for the next section of this film which like I'm cool with I I like that uh, tactic of being like we're going to tell this story now and now yeah. we're going to tell this story and you happen to already know these characters but we're I... this is what we're doing now I said to my dad when I was talking about this movie before I rewatched it, because I've seen it quite a few times, this is the perfect quintessential Quentin Tarantino movie. There is ultra violence. Um, there is uh, gratuitous everything. Like everything is excessive in it. Um, it's co- told completely out of chron- chronological order. It's, it's told in its own order. Um, every character has a purpose. Every character connects to every other character, even if it is just the moment of Vince and Butch at the bar, like kind of looking at each other weird. Um, and it is full of pop culture references and like popular music of the time. Um, and it, it blends all of the elements. This is not my favorite Tarantino film. I've already said it's in Glorious Bastards, but this is in my opinion, the perfect Quentin Tarantino film. And uh, I don't know, I just really appreciate this film, especially, especially compared to the other films we've discussed Mm -hmm, today. mm -hmm. This feels like film that was made for art, which I know is like, that's mostly Tarantino's deal, right? Film doesn't have to be art, but when it's art and when it's done well, you can tell. Like there's a... There is a canyon of differences between Quiz Show, um, which just felt like a cash cow, and Pulp Fiction, which was um, made with love and care and dedication to the craft. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino is a complete and utter asshole, but he's a brilliant artist. Yeah, so um, it just... I appreciated this film before. Um mm-hmm. This was the one film I had seen like on this list that I had seen on my own before just because I wanted to see the movie. Mm -hmm. Like even when I watched Forrest Gump before, I watched it because I felt like I should. Yeah. It's Um, one of those movies that everyone's like, oh, what do you mean you haven't watched it? Yeah, exactly. I Um, I just haven't watched it. Yeah. So I watched it with my partner. Um, But this one I had seen on my own before. And um, I liked it then. I still like it. Um, And it's just, it's, it's an original, which is like Mm -hmm. Tarantino's whole thing. Um, So of these five movies, only Pulp Fiction and Four Weddings and a Funeral were original films. They're not based on other material. Very different films. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but they got to the, these stories got to do what they wanted to do for the purpose of film, not for the purpose of telling another story. Yeah. Um, and I cared about most of these characters. Um, unlike the characters in the other, most of the characters in the other films we watched. Um, because of the way the narrative was set up, we got to spend time with each character. And we got to learn about them and their motivations, especially through the use of kind of mundane dialogue, like by talking about burgers and 
talking about the pilot of Fox Force 5. And just by like talking about stuff, we got to learn about the characters and what they're like. And it made me care about what was going to happen. Like, I didn't particularly like Mia, Uma Thurman's character, but I still Mm -hmm. cared about her. Like, I didn't want her to die of an overdose. Um, I was hoping she'd pull through. Yeah. And I, I, like, even when we spend a whole scene in the drug dealer's house, like, again, very few named or speaking female characters in this entire movie. I, like, I think all three of them are in the room together. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, except for Fabienne. Oh yeah, you're right, Fabienne. Um, so it, like, it's not breaking any boundaries there, and that's not a surprise. Um, but all of them had like a very interesting backstory that they hinted at, but we never really heard. Whereas I think uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, they never really hinted at anyone's backstory. It was kind of like they just existed in those moments. Um, like Mia obviously very storied life like how does she end up married to basically a crime boss um i would love to see a movie about her life she clearly loves the 1950s that's an interesting thing for us to know about her she wants to dance and she wants to win the trophy also a very interesting thing for us to learn about her um she has a cocaine problem interesting although worrying and and then that sets us up for when she finds the baggie oh no like we as the audience know what she's about to do and it's that dramatic irony of like that's not cocaine mia yeah um but i even cared about the drug dealer's wife jody jody because she's passionate about piercings and she's read about it and she believes in a philosophy about it and she doesn't like that's interesting so fascinating especially in 1994 um because like piercing culture didn't really exist yet like that was more in the early 2000s when we started to really see that like piercings as um as a statement not just as um well like as a statement and as like specifically chosen body modification instead of just like i'm here to like shock you um also she talks about having her clit pierced that is just super cool and that's not what john travolta questions no. As he's listening in on this conversation. It's not the weird part to him. Yeah, right? Which I've, I thought that was interesting. And um, I, I, like, I liked that that was the choice that was made. Yeah. Instead of to talk about something obviously, like, generally private about a person. Yeah. He talks about something that's, like, probably, like, he doesn't think is going to be, it's su- just like, a- super invasive. It's fascinating to me for him to be like, why would you have a stud in your tongue? And I'm like. I don't know. I feel like the first time I saw this movie, I was like, because it's good for blowjobs. Like, <laughs> duh. That, w- that was like one of my first thoughts when I heard that line. I was like, yeah, obviously that's why she would have that. It's a sex thing. Yeah. Helps yeah. with fellatio. Yeah. And, and it, knowing it, these things about this mm-hmm. character that we hardly see, I mm-hmm. like, I still cared about her. I thought she was interesting. Um, and yeah, that goes for all these characters that we meet. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of if there was a boring character in the film. Like really the character we know the least about is the one that ties it together. And that's Wallace. Yeah. We know hardly anything about him. Um, and he's the one that is tying all these characters together. He's the common denominator. You know who I would say is like boring in the sense of like we just don't know a lot about them yolanda totally forgot to mention her when i was talking about all the women in this movie i oh yeah yolanda's forgettable but kind of in a good way because like her whole thing with ringo is like it start it it opens the film the film opens with the two of them deciding to do this hold up in the restaurant and then we don't see them again for like 45 minutes like a good chunk of the movie we don't don't we not see them again till the end? And because the last scene is um You're right. Yep. Yeah, yep. we don't see them till the very end. We don't see them until No, no, no. We see them because the butch thing is what closes the movie. No, um, it's uh no, it's the diner. Am I losing my mind? You are. Okay. You great. are. It ends with the Travolta and Jackson in the 
Oh, in the diner, and then they in the yes, diner, and right. like one of the last things we see is them like pulling the elastic on their shorts to put their guns back. Oh in. yeah, that was very funny. Um, yeah, yeah. So like, so they yeah, open it's the, the opening film. and the closing. So you think these two characters are going to be very important, and then you don't see them again until the very end of the film. Um, and so like I would, I would say that Yolanda's forgettable in that sense, um, because she and Ringo just are supposed to be forgotten. You're supposed to not remember that they exist. Um, and then they show up and there's not a lot to them. Like they talk a little bit about stuff that they've done in the past. Um, but like they're, they're characters that need to exist in the moment that they exist in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the music. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to say just a little bit because in the same way that you could go on for hours about the marriage of Figaro, I could go on for hours about this soundtrack. It's an um, excellent soundtrack. It was very well curated and uh, really, it just, it really fit the whole vibe of the film. It fit the vibe of each moment. And uh, like, I really don't have anything else to add other than it Mm -hmm. was, it was well thought out and, and they'd they'd done good. (laughs) Um, I, shoot, I can't remember what the song exactly was. Hang on, is there rumble so it's a song called rumble by link ray and his ray men that song i don't know what it is with it but it has haunted me for so many years and when i finally figured out what it was i was like oh that's what this song is and maybe it's because of pulp fiction i'm not totally certain but like hearing it i just went this song um i'll send you a link to it later but I highly recommend everybody just look up the song Rumble by Link Ray. It's a song that you think you know where it's going to go and then it totally changes tack. And so it's a very Tarantino style song. Um, So for me, that is like my favorite part. But like this, this whole album has just really like the best of the best of a lot of these types of music. Um, like Jungle Boogie, Let's Stay Together, Son of a Preacher Man, um, the You Never Can Tell from Chuck Berry in um, Jack Rabbit Slims, uh, like just oh, and Comanche, which is when they bring out the gimp. It's it was just it was really well done. Yeah, Tarantino and... knows what he's doing when it comes to the film. Comes to the um the music in a film yeah and um I don't, like I, I don't have anything else to add because it just fit yep and and i think so this was tarantino's second major film the first one was reservoir dogs which kind of set the tone for his um out of order storytelling but again i think pulp fiction did it the absolute best possible where it just completely threw you off every time something happened um, and, and I think this is what's going to lead me into the most important question of the episode, uh, which is Nicole, which movie is your best picture? Oh, I have to think so hard. Like Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Pulp Fiction is also mine. Um, um nothing like, I understand why Forrest Gump won. Um, and like very deserving. One of the few cool. times I will say this very deserving. Um, but I just, I feel like Pulp Fiction was, um, more than a head above these other films in, um, how well it was executed and how interesting it was and how much I cared. Yeah. Yeah, It, I, to me, a best picture should bring all the elements of filmmaking together and should do it better than everyone else. And I, I just really think that Pulp Fiction did that. The music integrated in a way that you might not have necessarily expected but that it all came together and it fit right um it's tarantino so there is never an item out of place in the background or in costuming um it's very meticulous and everything contributes everything you see on screen is an important piece of the film um every word that's spoken is important and is incorporated um using long tracking shots like the the whole scene in the diner with the um like when the four characters are talking together goes on way too freaking long 
but you don't care because you're still in there. Sorry, you raised your hand and I kept talking. Oh. <laughs> um, because you said the long tracking shots. And um, I just think of one of the very early scenes when um, uh, the apartment Jules hallways. and Vince arrive yeah. um, and they're talking about foot massages through the elevator and through the hallways and different hallways. And it's all one shot. Yeah. Um, at least it appears to be one shot. I know movie magic is a thing, but like yeah. it was, it was so good. It's seamless. Yeah. And they were talking about like something that didn't really matter. Like it mattered a little bit, but it didn't it matter that much. Like and, I've, I've had conversations like that where you're just talking about yeah. nothing. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting because mm-hmm. Sam Jackson is the foot fucking master. And it's just interesting. It, I don't know. It, I mean, it sometimes feels a little bit soured for me learning that Tarantino has like a foot thing. So like this clearly is just. Oh, I didn't know that. Why would you have to share? <laughs> but that's also why Uma Thurman often isn't wearing shoes in this film. Oh. Yeah. He had a huge crush on Uma Thurman. And it, unfortunately, it was like the artist dated his muse and it was just you know, you should never do that, right? Ugh, I've heard those stories. Ugh. Okay, anyways. But, and that's the thing. I I do separate art and artist in the case of Quentin Tarantino because I know that he is completely crazy dickhead. Um, but he does really incredible films that I really enjoy. So for me, I can do that separation. And uh, it's... Um... It's good to know which artists you want to do that with and which ones you don't want to do that with. Yep. And uh, it's, unfortunately, it's a decision we have to make as consumers in the 21st century. Yep. And uh, it's important for us to make those decisions. And as long as we're making a decision, that's what matters. Yeah. yeah. As, as long uh, as consumers. it's a conscious and active choice. Yep. Um, I, The last thing I want to say about Pulp Fiction is uh do you remember in avengers nope sorry captain america's civil war when um nick fury dies and was it oh. the russo brothers or was it whedon who had... no, it was russo brothers and it was um winter soldier i just thank um, you yes winter i'm watching soldier. all the marvel movies right now so i was okay. like alternating between these movies and marvel movies <laughs> and i think that's the last one we watched was winter soldier but yeah, so when Nick Fury dies in Winter Soldier, his gravestone has Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, which is not an actual Bible passage. My husband lost his damn mind when that... we saw that because we had just watched Pulp Fiction. He's like, no, that's yeah. not it, is it? And I'm like, yeah. look at this. That's it. And he was losing his mind. Yeah, yeah that's a fun little Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> um, So... The other question I got to ask you, Nicole, what uh, what other movie would you have considered nominating instead? Well, there's many, many films we could have considered. Um, yeah. For example, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Crooklyn, D2, The Mighty Ducks, Little Women, Richie Rich, Street Fighter. The Swan Princess, The Santa Claus, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, The Crow, and my personal choice, The Lion King. I I feel like Lion King won Best Animated. Um, they didn't have Best Animated then. They didn't? That category didn't exist yet. Um, Lion oh. King did win for uh, Best Original Score and Best Song. Um, well, yeah, of course. But yeah, so that um, it's a lion. Hey, look, it's a lion. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Lion King was not up for other ones. So that's I, the one I would put in. I do have to apologize to everyone because I know it, it sounds really weird when I laugh, but I live in an apartment building. Um, so I didn't want to like, you know, upset my neighbors with laughing as hard as I wanted to laugh. <laughs> Yeah, so oh, um, Maverick came out this year. There were it was like there's lots like Speed came out. And Speed should have been nominated. It was nominated for some things, but um, it's better. I don't than remember what. at a funeral. <laughs> the Princess and the Goblin. That is my favorite animated movie of all time. Oh, it is. Uh, Troll in Central looking. Park also came out. Um, 
Aladdin 2, Return of Jafar. I could go on. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. what we've... Oh, Angels in the Outfield. That was a fun movie. Forgot about that one. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Man. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of these movies, I would I would pick The Lion King to be nominated. And um, I think I would still let Pulp Fiction win. Yeah. But uh, Lion King would it would be up there. Um, the Client came out in 1994. Like, one of the best um, Grisham novel uh, adaptations. How, how was that not nominated? Like, sure, it's not breaking any boundaries, but, like, it, it's an incredible film. But was, did Quiz Show break any boundaries? That's an excellent point. Oh, yeah. right. White men. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always the, that's the key there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Nicole. Um, it was no so lovely to have you. Uh, and I just, I also really had fun chatting with you, too. We haven't talked I in a like while. talking about art. So, it's so this good. was, this was fun. And I, I watched films I wouldn't have watched otherwise. Yes. Um, um, which is a fun little project. So uh, do you have like anything interesting that you want to plug or do you want people to follow you anywhere? Um, if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I'm <laughs> at nhkates, N-H-C-A-T-E-S. Um, I sing there sometimes. Um, and if you follow me on Instagram, you will see when I announce my new business that I'm creating. Um, and it's, uh, I'm combining music with uh, core curriculum subjects for grade school kids. So oh, nice. if you are a teacher or a parent who's temporarily or permanently homeschooling, um, it's going to be a thing I'm launching this year and I will be announcing it on my Instagram. That is super exciting. And I guarantee you, I know I have a couple teachers that listen. <laughs> so yeah, thanks. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited about that. I'm was so happy to do this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Nominated. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at NominatedPod. Nicole is on Instagram at NHKates, N-H-C-A-T-E-S. Next episode's films are the nominees from 1964. My Fair Lady, Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek. to talk about the people that like are really notable mm-hmm. um you gotta talk about art sometimes especially in times like these when you don't do stuff like as much as much as